I will start to like look fidgety and freak out and do things like this all the time. So. <laughs> Can we give it a couple minutes with people sure. to file back in? Sometimes it's heavy one way, it's pretty I looked up through one of the windows and it's like the Home Depot like corporate office is there. If we could get the, the, but I may put three chairs in front of the so desk, in front of the desk, right in front, oh, cool. with the buzzer, what I, what I did and then last you guys can. So I might do that. I just want. Things. I park and look around. I think so. And then decide who wants to play, right? Because I want to. I'm going to set the table over. Actually, while Okay. So thanks. Great. Thanks, Lori. So thanks for the introduction. My name's Eric Schmidt. I am a pediatric emergency fellow at Harbor UCLA. That's my full-time job. I'm also lucky enough to work part-time with these folks up at Kauia. And, you know, despite Harbor being kind of one of these big, busy county hospitals, I've probably seen uh, more interesting and sicker patients in the last two years at Kauia than I've actually seen at Harbor during my fellowship. So I'm going to be talking about uh, pediatric lymph cases. Um, I did my emergency medicine residency up in Fresno, and as Dr. James mentioned, uh, we were classmates. And I did actually scribe for him on one or two cases, the most memorable of which was a, uh, uh, a young lady. She uh, had come in, and I just started my shift, and doc, uh, Dr. James, I don't know where he was at, but the nurse comes up to me, beginning my shift, I'm just logging on to the computer, and she says, can you, can you come see this patient, Dr. Schmidt? Uh, Dr. James saw her, she's here for a headache and some abdominal pain, and I'm just really worried about her, and I can't find Dr. James, I want someone to come see this lady. So I look at her, I say, so, so what, what's your concern, first of all, before I get up, since it's not my patient? She's like, well, I think she's having contractions. So I go see this patient, of course, there's a head at the perineum, and I deliver the baby, and so I did finish Dr. James' chart on that case. So. Did you credit for that one? I, I did take credit for that one. It's, uh, he's not even here to, okay, never mind. I'll, you guys will have to tell him that I told the story. So, so I'm going to talk about uh, pediatric lymph cases, and I've got a lot more material than I can cover in an hour, so I've got a lot of other uh, kind of high-yield board review uh, cases at the end. I'm going to leave this PowerPoint with you guys so you can use that later. Lori's going to cut me off whenever my time is up, but we'll, we'll get through as much as we can, okay? 
So these are our, our objectives. I want to review some uh, important pediatric hip disorders, talk about any evidence-based or unfortunately lack of evidence-based for the diagnostic strategies that we're going to use in the emergency department, talk about what we need to do in terms of disposition and management, and we're also going to talk a little bit about kind of the definitive or orthopedic care for these. And I think that's important not because we're doing it, but because the patients want to know. We're going to make the diagnosis. The patients want to know what's going to happen next. And so it's really important for us to know what the orthopedic surgeon is going to do, what the natural history of these are so that we can counsel our patients when we see them. And it makes us sound smarter. Okay. And again, if we have time at the end, we're going to go through some of these high yields and also maybe some high liability cases. Uh, so let's start with a case presentation. This is a three-year-old female. Her chief complaint is left leg pain and a limp. Uh, it's localized to the left thigh. When you ask this girl, point to where it hurts, right there, left thigh. She's able to point to it. Uh, it was acute onset of the day of presentation. Uh, she woke up with the pain, and parents brought her in in the afternoon. Uh, patient refuses to walk. Uh, she doesn't really seem to be in pain when she's just sitting there, but if you pick her up, try and set her on the ground, she does this sort of thing. She won't put any weight on it. Uh, important negatives, there's really no history of preceding trauma or any other symptoms or illnesses that the parents uh, or the patient would admit to. And no past medical, uh, social, family review systems, pretty negative. So this is what we've got to work on. Vital signs, pretty age appropriate, nothing really jumps out at me. Uh, heart rate 1 to 1 is probably normal for a 3 year old. 100% uh, on room air, she's afebrile. General appearance, very comfortable appearing girl sitting there on the gurney. She's interactive. And just on inspection of the extremity in question, we're not seeing any swelling. There's no discoloration. And as you palpate, there's no obvious deformity and no tenderness. Neurovascular exam, again, normal. And she actually was really cooperative and compliant when you took her through a passive range of motion. But again, she refuses to bear any weight. So what do you guys think is going on? Give me a differential diagnosis. Okay. What else? Leg like heavy perth. Okay. Anything else? Septic hip. Septic hip. Okay. Okay. Good. Great. Okay. So the most common things uh, in this age group with this presentation is probably going to be a transient synovitis, maybe a septic hip. Uh, a whole bunch of other stuff if we start to broaden our differential. Trauma always has to be uh, something we think about. Developmental dysplasia probably isn't going to present this late at three years old. Leg cavity purse and scaphy, she's both a little bit young for those. Uh, if we kind of want to start thinking about some zebras, could this be rheumatic fever? Could she have a bone tumor if we want to get really crazy? Could she have a psoas abscess, tuberculosis, something really bizarre like that? So what do you guys want to order? You just saw this patient, she looks okay, doesn't want to walk. What are you guys' initial order is going to be? X-ray, I like it, what else? So we're going to get some lab tests, we're going to get an X-ray. I also like treating my patients, we're going to have a little Motrin too. So this is what she was ordered when she was seen initially. So let's talk about transient synovitis and we'll come back to the case. So this is the most common cause of painful hips in children. We actually see this pretty frequently. Uh, up to 3% of children will have this at some point. The etiology really is unclear. Uh, people do speculate there's some sort of a post-viral or post-infectious etiology that really hasn't been well worked out though. And these all do well. There's really no long-term morbidity. The typical age is between 3 and 10, the average being 6 years. So our patient's a little bit young. 
for reasons that people don't understand real well, it is more common in males with about a two and a half to one uh, ratio, and almost always unilateral. So when you get in bilateral pain, you should be thinking of something else. So the clinical presentations can be really similar to our patients. It can be either a limp or refusal to bear weight, and it's usually presenting fairly acutely like our patient. And this is going to be a, a common theme with all of these hip disorders is that the patient can localize their pain really where anywhere along the lower extremities. So, you know, we'll talk about it later. The adolescent who comes in with knee pain, you have to think hip. And so you can see knee, hip, thigh pain anywhere uh, because of the poor localization of the body. And again, these patients, like ours, usually well-appearing, non-toxic, and usually afebrile. And because there are some more serious things on our differential, this is kind of a diagnosis of exclusion after we think about some of the more serious things. Okay. In terms of making the diagnosis, plain films usually are going to be normal. Uh, you may see some joint space widening if you do. Uh, that may actually be an early sign of leg heavy purse, which we'll talk about in a couple of slides. And if we want to do an ultrasound, you will see an effusion uh, with transient synovitis. Uh, kind of one of the people's thoughts are, we're trying to make the distinction between a septic hip and transient synovitis. Is ultrasound going to be helpful? And probably not because both are going to have an effusion. So that really can't distinguish between the two. MRI uh, may be able to di uh, distinguish the two based on the way the signal lights up on the different uh, flares and sequences. However, this is probably going to delay the diagnosis. Getting a three-year-old into an MRI is going to be uh, pretty difficult. You need anesthesia. You need a cooperative uh, radiologist as well. And so it's really not what we're going to be using to make the diagnosis. What it comes down to is if you're not 100% convinced this is transient synovitis, if you're concerned this may be a septic hip, you really need to do an arthrocentesis to rule out a septic joint. In terms of ED care, natural history for transient synovitis, the symptoms resolve usually within a couple of days with just rest and analgesia. Uh, the recommendation is to have them completely non-weight-bearing and have the hip in a position of comfort. Again, enforcing non-weight-bearing status in a three-year-old, good luck, but that's what the recommendation is. Uh, and really, it's supposed to only be returned to activity once the symptoms resolve. Again, good luck with a three-year-old or even a six-year-old or older. So in terms of treatment, nonsteroidals actually uh, were pretty good. This is uh, an article from Annals in 02. They did a really well-done randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, ibuprofen versus placebo for patients uh, that had transient synovitis. Pretty small numbers, but despite that, they did have a statistically significant shorter duration of symptoms. That's not just statistically significant. I said that's probably clinically significant to a two days difference. Uh, there was a trend towards increased GI symptoms in the non-steroidal group. Uh, wasn't significant, but uh, I'm sure the study was underpowered to do that. So again, that's one of the things you just counsel the, the family, that your Motrin ibuprofen, it's going to be good. It's going to help them feel better, but they're going to have some stomach upset. So you want to make sure they take it with food. Just be aware of it. So let's go back to our case. So we see her after she got the Motrin and really minimal change in pain, and she remains non-ambulatory. So this is our white count. I don't know, is that helpful? Yay, nay, that doesn't do much for us. Rest for uh, CBC looks okay. ESR is 21, is that helpful? No, that's kind of one of the intermediate. I wish I hadn't gotten the test because now I don't know what to do with it, right? CRP, luckily that is low. 
And now that she's been in the ER for a couple hours, she gets this fever, or almost a fever of 37.9. So does she have transient synovitis? Does she have septic arthritis? And since these can present pretty similarly, what can we use? So there is a little bit of literature uh, that we can look at. Uh, this is an older study in 92. They did a retrospective chart review again, uh, relatively small numbers, uh, just a little over 100 patients total. Uh, the majority of them had transient synovitis. Actually, it's kind of remarkable they had nearly 40 patients with septic arthritis since this is really pretty uncommon. They found age, gender, and involved side really were not significant in terms of distinguishing between the two. They found statistical differences in ESR temperature and white count, but let's actually look at those numbers. So. ESR 44 versus 19, that seems pretty impressive. And look at that p-value, wow, less than 0.001. You think that's great. But then look at the range. The septic arthritis hips anywhere from 6 to 90, and the transient synovitis anywhere from 1 to 125. So what this tells me is, in a population, yeah, it may be useful, but what am I going to do with the patient in front of me right now? Can I use this test? Probably not. Look at the temp. Same thing, statistically different, but 38.1 and 37.2, that's not a huge difference. I'm not sure how much that's going to help me with the patient at the bedside. Same thing, white count significant, but not a very big difference. And what they did in this particular study is they did some receiver operating curves and tried to find some cutoffs. And what they came up with was aspirate the hip if your ESR is greater than 20 or attempt greater than 37.5. Again, I'm not sure if we can take that to bank with such a small study. So something a little bit more contemporary, uh, joint and joint surgery. This is the orthopedic journal in 2006. They had, again, even fewer patients, uh, 48. Uh, they did all have the gold standard test, though, of arthrocentesis. These are orthopedic surgeons publishing this data, so there's a huge spectrum and referral bias. And actually, if you look at their results, about two-thirds of their patients had septic arthritis. So again, makes you wonder how much we can actually apply this to our ER population. But let's talk about what they have. So, Doing univariate analysis, they have some kind of arbitrary cutoffs using a temperature of 38.5, an ESR of 40, or a CRP of 2, all statistically significant uh, in terms of pointing you towards septic arthritis. And the more of those you had, the more likely you were to have septic arthritis. Problem is, one patient who had septic arthritis had none of those, and three of the patients only had one of those three features. Again, can we take this to the bank? Can we use this with our ER population? Probably not. So does our patient need her hip tapped? Well, you know, I, I, I gave this lecture, uh, I, I've given a version of this lecture maybe a half a dozen times, and at, this is the point where I go and I give you the piece of information, which we haven't talked about yet, and that's her plain film, and say that, you know, she actually has neither of those diseases. <laughs> and the last time I gave this was at the, the residence up in Fresno, and I go to start talking about her patient's diagnosis, and one of the residents in the front row gets this really frustrated look and raises his hand and say, but wait a minute, would you have tapped her hip or not? And, and so I, I want to answer that question. You know, assuming that her x-ray had been normal, I'd say you probably have to. If you have the clinical suspicion, then uh, you probably should do an arthrocentesis because it's a bad miss uh, if you don't pick it up. So, I see some hands. That's Dr. Spade. That's a great question. Are we going to do this ourselves? And no, the the hip arthrocentesis. Uh, there's been, I think, some pilot studies looking about doing it under ultrasound guidance. But the standard of care is under fluoroscopy and probably either deep sedation or general anesthesia with an orthopedic surgeon. So then you load them with antibiotics and put them in and get the right consult then, or would you hold off? 
Exactly. So, so what do we do if I'm suspicious since we're not going to do the tap? What I would do at this point is I would call my friendly orthopedic surgeon on the phone and say, listen, this is the story. I'm suspicious about a septic hip. Will you come see this kid quickly, please, because I think that she needs her hip tapped. And if they say, yeah, I'm on my way, I'm going to say, oh, before you hang up the phone, do you want me to give you antibiotics first or do you just want to come see them? Okay. And your friendly orthopedic surgeon may say, I don't do kids, so send them to your receiving children's hospital. And then you get on the phone to their transfer center, and I would ask them the same question. Do you want me to give antibiotics before I send them or not? And if they hedge, I would, my, my feeling would be towards giving antibiotics, and you're going to want to cover MRSA in your grandpa's. Okay. So that's my hands. Maybe I missed uh, the vaccination history or whether it plays into your decision is like so many other serious bacterial infections are so much less common now in the age of vaccines. Does septic arthritis of the hip in a three-year-old fit into that group? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of these historically were hemophilus, uh, from seeded from bacteremia. Since the rates of bacteremia in kids have really dropped precipitously with uh, vaccination, oh, we've seen the same thing with uh, septic hips. What uh, I recall from looking at these is most of these, when they do end up coming back positive, it's either resistant uh, strep pneumo or a strep pneumo strain that's not covered by the pneumovax, or it's going to be uh, a staph uh, species. And uh, MRSA, community acquired MRSA, is definitely a significant number of these, these hips, even in kids without a risk for MRSA. So I would certainly uh, cover it. But yeah, again, the overall incidence of septic arthritis has really dropped quite a bit in kids. And at the same time, the presumably the incidence of uh, transient synovitis has stayed the same. And so Correct. the pretest probability is reduced. Yeah, that's a great point. So you see this kid, and the chances are, no matter what the story is, the chances are it's going to be transient synovitis. Just if you're going to play the odds and bet, then you, it's, it's a pretty good bet. But with a, a higher risk diagnosis like septic arthritis, I'm not sure I'm going to bet on that. Okay. So, and, and the the times where I would be comfortable not doing uh, the arthrocentesis, you've got a kid who maybe has the preceding viral illness. Uh, they don't look sick. They're well appearing, and really. Usually what happens is in the ER is you give them a dose of Motrin, you walk away for a couple hours, you give them a, enough time for the labs to come back, and either the labs will be normal or not grossly abnormal, and you'll have a kid who's happy and running around the bed. A lot of times just a single dose of Motrin will, will get them moving around. And the other thing with a, a septic joint is, unlike our patient, they're really going to resist uh, both active as well as passive range of motion. So uh, if a kid's going to let you take them through a passive range of motion pretty cooperatively, my pretest probability for a septic joint is going to drop quite a bit uh, if they're not letting Letting you passively arrange them, I'm going to be worried. Okay. Other hand. You were saying that in this case that you would have probably tap, tap the kid's hip. Now, um, I, I'm assuming the incidence of an infusion is higher in a septic joint than it is in transient synovitis. And so at that point, do you, in someone who's borderline like this, then do you order the ultrasound and kind of pray that there's no infusion there and commit yourself to a tap <laughs> that is an infusion? Or? That, that's a great question. So what about ultrasound? Look for effusion. I, 
I don't know the literature in terms of the negative predictive value of no effusion in septic arthritis. Uh, we do know that you do see effusions with transient synovitis as well. At that point, I'm not going to be making the call. I've said the eye of the clinical suspicion. I think a orthopedic surgeon needs to see this kid and make the decision whether or not the hip needs to be tapped. So I wouldn't be ordering the ultrasound myself. I've seen the orthopedic surgeons ask for it. Okay. So luckily, we kind of uh, dodged the bullet with our case because we have a diagnosis based on this x-ray. So what do you guys see here? So first of all, before you give me a diagnosis, just describe the x-ray. You don't have to know what the disease is if you can describe what you're seeing on the film. What do you see? The femoral head is necrotic. So, so yeah, moth eating, femoral head there on the left, which is the side of her pain. So what's the diagnosis? Avascular necrosis or leg cavity purse. So uh, this is her frog leg where it's even more obvious. So let's talk about leg cavity purse. Uh, it presents like our patient with pain or a limp. Uh, again, it may be localized uh, knee, thigh, hip, anywhere on that axis. Uh, the pain is usually not acute and can be intermittent. So our patient is a little bit unusual in the fact that she did present with acute symptoms. And what we see on exam is kind of like our patient. She has an antalgic gait or they will refuse to bear weight. Uh, they will have pain with range of motion. It's a little unusual to have a completely normal passive range of motion, but our patient actually did. And something actually, if you measure from the iliac spine to the medial malleolus, you can actually pick up a subtle leg length discrepancy. Uh, I'm not sure how useful that is for us actually, but uh, something they do describe. So the average age for these is six years old, so kind of the same age uh, range as transient synovitis. Most of the patients are between four and nine, so our patient's definitely on the younger age of things at three years old. And somewhere around a third of these patients will actually have bilateral disease. The etiology of this is unclear, uh, but the end result is ischemia necrosis of the femoral head, as we saw in the x-ray. And a lot of people looked at trying to figure out why this happens, and they have in studies found that there is some association with uh, levels of low protein C or S, factor V Leiden mutations, uh, but it's really unclear whether this is a causal or an association with some other etiology, and it's definitely not universal. It's just something they do find a slightly increased risk of. So I found this really interesting. This is from Pediatrics in 2010. They did a population registry from Sweden. This is great because of the socialized system. You can do these huge longitudinal population-based studies. And so what they had is over 3,000 patients with leg heavy purse, and they're able to match it to almost 16,000 control patients. And then they followed them because they have lifelong data on these patients. What they found is that the patients with leg cavity purse actually had a 70% higher risk of cardiovascular disease and a 40% higher risk of blood disorders compared to their controls. And this is kind of a, a composite marker, cardiovascular disease, uh, a lot of it is hypertension, things like that. And um, they may actually be underestimating the true impact of this since a lot of the patients were younger than 30 at the end of follow-up. Uh, and again, this is kind of an interesting association. We can't draw any hard conclusions, but uh, we know that the femoral head, there's something that makes this necrotic, and there is obviously a suggestion of some underlying pathogenesis that we really haven't worked out yet, but definitely interesting to be aware of. So. How do we make this diagnosis? It's definitely a plain film diagnosis like we saw. Uh, labs are either going to be normal or they're not going to be helpful as with our patient. 
Uh, MRI or bone scan uh, can definitely be diagnostic and may actually be more sensitive early in the disease uh, since the x-ray may actually be normal within the first three to six months uh, before you've actually started to have loss of the contour of the femoral head. And the natural history is a progression over two to four years. And the first thing that you'll start to see is uh, a smaller femoral head compared to the contralateral side. You may start to see some widening of the joint space on x-ray. Uh, then you'll see a radiolucent line within the femoral head followed by more opacity of the ossific nucleus and the epiphysis will become fragmented. And lastly, you'll see reossification and there is a variable amount of residual deformity depending on the severity of the disease. And so this is a case I didn't see initially, but I saw him when he followed up. So this is his initial x-ray as a six-year-old. And two years later, you can see that he is uh, reossified very well and really doesn't have too much deformity compared to the contralateral side. So it's kind of amazing how that happens. And this how is... How functional did he become? Uh, he had uh, a little bit of pain when I was seeing him at this point, but uh, they're actually presenting because it was an acute onset of pain in their word because he had this history, but had been doing very well and was very functional. And this is actually a really a self-limiting disease within childhood. They tend to do very well through adolescence, young adulthood. However, once you start to get uh, around 40 or 50 years or older, about half of them will develop some sort of arthritis or degenerative joint disease. Good prognostic factors are uh, younger age of diagnosis and children less than six at onset almost universally do well. And uh, again, less residual deformity. So if you have greater than 50% of your lateral pillar uh, remains, then most all of those will do well also. So what do we do uh, in terms of seeing these patients in the emergency department once we've made the diagnosis? Uh, primarily it's supportive care because this is a self-limiting disease. We're going to go ahead and reduce pain with non-steroidals, reduce activity during the acute phase, and an outpatient referral to orthopedics is appropriate. Uh, and again, what are the orthopedic surgeons going to do? Most of them are also going to treat with supportive care. It's a very small minority of patients who will benefit from surgical treatment. It ends up being those at older age and with uh, intermediate disease. Not so much a decision for us to make, but uh, you know, all these patients should at least be followed by orthopedics. Right. So. Uh, that is debated within the orthopedic literature, and because it's such a narrow population that benefits, uh, it's really not clear which of the surgical uh, modalities has the most benefit. There was a, a paper that was published by Dr. Herring, uh, who he actually, his name is attached to the classification for leg heavy purse. Uh, he did a big study, I believe it was published Jonah Boynt surgery in uh, late 2000, like 2008, 2009. And what they did is looked at non-operative versus operative management. And what they found is in the patients with older age at onset and with intermediate uh, severity of disease, the operative approaches were superior to the non-operative approaches, but they were underpowered to detect a difference between the different operative in interventions. So. So uh, they uh, actually will do some osteotomies. I'm not sure the specific procedures. Uh, so it uh, that'd probably be a better question for orthopedic surgeons because I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. And assuming that you ruled out other emergent causes, I mean, if we don't diagnose this in the emergency department, it's not the end of the world, correct? If they can follow up with their exactly. Exactly, because it's self-limiting. All these kids are going to do well in the short term. This is not a bad thing for us to miss. 
Yeah, but the corollary is every case that I've seen presented, I don't know if I've ever actually seen one myself, mm -hmm. the patients are far advanced, the x-ray is obvious. So if we adopt the, the process to x-ray every kid who won't walk, <coughs> x-ray his hip, we're going to find advanced disease most of the time. Hasn't been one of those things where it's always really subtle and you, you missed it and you actually right. you missed it. They're pretty obvious. So yeah, and, and that's a great point. Usually when these kids are going to be presenting, it, it's usually not going to be acutely like our patient. It's going to be more, you know, my kid's been limping for a couple of weeks and they say it hurts and you get the x-ray and you kind of see that, that advanced moth eat. And it's going to be unusual they'll present early on in the disease where the x-ray is still normal. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about a second case. So this is an eight-year-old female, African-American. She's complaining of a limp and left thigh pain. Uh, this has been persistent over the last four to six weeks. Definitely worse with ambulation, although she is able to bear weight. Uh, no associated or preceding symptoms that either the patient or her family admits to. And I'm seeing her in early September, and what they're saying, you know, she's been limping for like the last month and a half. She, she probably just did something over the summer. We don't know what. We can't point to a specific injury, but we're sure she did something. She's just not getting better. Can we get her checked out? So that's how she's presenting. No past medical history, no review of systems. Her father had skiffy, and her physical exam is notable for obesity an antalgia gait, and limited range of motion. So before I show you the x-ray, what's her diagnosis? Skiffy. Yeah, exactly. So this is a textbook presentation for Skiffy. So before I show you the x-ray, let me tell you another story. Uh, the interesting thing about the pediatric ED at Harbor is there's no attending coverage from 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. So the pediatric ED is separate from the adult ED, and there's always an attending in the adult ED. So if a, a really sick kid comes in after hours, the senior resident who's running the show between 2 and 8 can get some help. So this patient came in somewhere between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. and saw a senior resident who heard the story and was very concerned and ordered an x-ray and was so concerned about the story they called the on-call radiology resident for a confirmatory read. And the on-call radiology resident said, normal x-ray. However, the attending radiologist came in the next morning and said, what are you guys thinking? This patient has skiffy and call him back. And so I actually saw this patient on her return visit. So the true chief complaint to me was they called me and told me I have skiffy, so I'm here. So, but to make it more interesting, I gave you her initial presentation. So. So this x-ray actually is subtle. It's diagnostic, but it's subtle. And uh, I'm, I don't blame the resident for missing this. I do blame the radiology uh, resident, but not the, the senior pediatric resident. So what we're seeing here is there is a little bit of asymmetry within the joint space itself, and you're seeing a widening and a blurring of the physis compared to the contralateral side. So that's one of the subtle but diagnostic signs. And if you get the frog leg, then this is diagnostic, and we'll talk about this in a second, and I'll, we'll draw some lines, okay? So what is Skiffy? It is a posterior and inferior slippage of the epiphysis relative to the metaphysis, and this is caused by a loss of mechanical integrity at the growth plate. And this is usually associated with obesity. About half the patients with the diagnosis are above 95% weight for age, so definitely a huge risk factor. Also, male gender, African-American, Hispanics, and there's also some geographic variation that seems to be more common in the Northeast. Again, the true etiology for that, not real well worked out. 
So there's also some predisposing endocrinopathies. These uh, are responsible for a small percentage of the patients with SCIFI, but definitely a high risk for the patients with these diagnoses. And we usually see these patients present during this uh, uh, pubescent growth spurt. And for that reason, females tend to present at a younger age than males. And the theory with that is there's increased thickness of the growth plate and thinning of the perichondrial ring. So there's uh, less mechanical integrity uh, during that growth spurt. So another important thing about this diagnosis is around a third of these patients will actually have bilateral disease, although only about 10% of the patients will have bilateral disease at the initial presentation. As with our patients, symptoms are usually present for several weeks before they actually seek medical attention. Limp is a big part of this. Uh, the pain, again, localized anywhere, knee, hip, thigh. The board question, which you uh, definitely can expect to see, is a 14-year-old African-American male who's a little bit chunky, complaining of knee pain, and the diagnosis is not Osgood-Schlatter, but it's going to be skiffy. Okay? So on physical exam, antalgic gait, limited internal range of motion. And if you're really astute, you can actually uh, passively flex the hip and look for some external uh, range. And that's, again, if you are really good at visualizing th things in 3D, if you imagine the uh, epiphysis sliding off and then imagining that uh, flexing, you can see it'll kind of cause the leg to extend. Okay. So. This matters for us a lot more than like heavy purse, which does well if we miss the diagnosis. Skiffy doesn't. Delayed diagnosis can resort, uh, result in further slippage. And the longer this goes before it's fixed and the more it slips, you're at increased risk for avascular necrosis and chondrolysis, and that is bad for your patient. There's also this uh, subset of skiffy patients uh, who are associated with some sort of an acute traumatic event. And this is actually a type of a Salter-Harris-1 fracture. And I'll talk a little bit more about this subset of unstable skiffy in a couple of slides. Again, this presentation has a pretty broad differential diagnosis. Uh, these patients tend to be a little bit older than those that we see with transient synovitis. Septic hip, again, is a possibility. Leg heavy purse, again, there's overlap. These patients tend to be older. These, again, are usually adolescents, very active in sports and things like that, so you have to worry about soft tissue or other uh, injuries. And again, definitely common to see knee pain with this, and so knee pain may be good, may be Osgood Slaughter's, but you need to rule out Skiffy before you settle on that too, okay? So how do we make the diagnosis? How do we not miss these? And it's gonna be a plain film diagnosis. We should get the AP and definitely get the frog leg lateral. As you saw in our case, the AP, it was diagnostic, but it was definitely subtle. However, the frog leg uh, was a lot easier to see. And what we're looking for is the anterior and posterior corners of the epiphysis and metaphysis to line up closely. And as we saw in our patient on the AP, you may see either a widening or a blurring of the physis or the growth plate. And really what we're going to be doing is drawing Klein's line. So let's go back to our frog leg lateral of our patient. So what Klein's line is, is a line across the anterior part of the femoral neck there. And what it should do is it should intersect at least some part of the epiphysis. So we're seeing that it cuts off that little corner right there. Draw Klein's line on the other side, and we're missing. Okay, so that diagnostic for Skiffy. So what about this patient? 
So this, you're, you're seeing the, the definitely the picture. This is what you're going to see on the boards if they give you a case. This is going to be the ice cream scoop falling off the cone. They're not going to give you something really subtle on an in-service or a board exam. But let's draw Klein's line here. This is the same patient on a frog leg. Oops. If you imagine, I, sorry, I don't have this automatically, but if you draw Klein's line here, definitely we're way off the epiphysis. But look at the other side. We're missing it there, too. So she actually has bilateral disease. And again, if you're just struck by how remarkable she is on the left, you don't draw Klein's line, you may actually miss the fact she's got disease on the right, too. Okay. So the traditional classification in the literature is acute versus chronic. Uh, they've gotten away from that, and now what makes a lot more sense is unstable versus stable skiffy. And this is what I was talking about with the Salter-Harris-1 fracture. The unstable patients, they're going to present differently. There's going to be some sort of an acute injury that precipitated their limp. They're going to be unable to bear weight. And this is uh, luckily a pretty small minority of the patients, only about 5%. Contrast that to the stable Skiffy, who is our patient. They're able to bear weight. It's usually more of an indolent presentation, and this carries a much better prognosis, as I'll talk about in a couple of slides. And this is kind of an academic distinction because all these patients need operative management. Okay. So what do we do? We see the patient with stable Skiffy. I've been limping for a couple of months. The ice cream cone is, uh, or the ice cream scoop is off the cone. You know. First thing we want to do is we want to prevent any further slippage. So these patients, strict non-weight bearing. And if you have a setting where the pediatric orthopedic surgeon says, you know what, I'm not going to see them because it's 5 p.m., have them come to my office 8 a.m. tomorrow, NPO, and I'll book them into the OR, that, that may be okay for prompt follow-up. I think for most of our patients, and certainly the medically legally the safest thing to do, have the orthopedic surgeon see them that day, okay, even if you're stable. Uh, the orthopedic treatment is going to be with a single screw, and the stable Skiffy patients postoperatively return to weight bearing almost immediately postoperatively. And once the physis closes, they can return to normal activity. And they need uh, good long term follow up to make sure that they heal well. Now, in this case, the risk of avascular necrosis is almost 0%. This is why it's important for us to pick up this diagnosis early on before it gets worse. And this is our patient postoperatively. You can see a single screw right there through the femoral neck into the growth, through the growth plate to the epiphysis. So contrast that with the unstable patients. This is someone who had some sort of a sports injury, tripped and fall, and now they're presenting with an acute or Salter Harris 1 skiffy. These need emergent consultation with orthopedic, orthopedic surgery. And the specific treatment that the orthopedic surgeon is going to do still remains a little bit controversial. They debate on the type of screws, whether they should be operated on immediately or whether there should be a couple of days of a cooling off period before surgery, whether or not there should be any sort of reduction before the operative fixation. Uh, not for us to decide, but it's not clear what, how best to manage these patients. And contrast that to the stable Skiffy, these patients are going to be non-weight bearing for at least six to eight weeks post-operatively until you get a good callus around the growth plate. And despite best treatment, the risk of avascular necrosis is really pretty high, somewhere between 20 and 50 percent. Usually this is going to present early, so if you get out of that first and you're doing well, that does carry better prognosis. Okay. So in terms of natural history, once these are fixed, there's remodeling of the proximal femur uh, after the uh, physeal closure. 
And if there is significant residual deformity, that's going to put you at risk for arthritis uh, later on in life. And so depending on the degree of deformity, uh, there are some options in terms of osteotomies that the orthopedic surgeons may do uh, once uh, this is remodeled. And remember when I said that about a third of these patients will have bilateral disease, but only about 10% on presentation. Uh, there's one of the debates in the literature about whether or not we should be doing prophylactic screws on the other side if we just see one. Seems to be more common in Europe, not happening here so much, but something that you may hear about or see about. And this is the second patient I showed who had bilateral disease uh, when she was fixed postoperatively. Okay. So any questions about pediatric hips? before we talk about some, do I have any time, Are Lauren? Um, <laughs> okay, let's do. Because technically I could catch up right now, which would be nice. Okay. How about this? I've got lot, uh, lots of pictures, not so much words. How if we just do like a flash diagnosis? Okay, cool. Is that okay? Sounds good. Okay, 10-year-old male, Foosh, what's the diagnosis? Supercondylar, how can we tell? Right, posterior fat pad and the anterior humeral line should go through the middle third of the capitellum and it doesn't. So again, you guys will have these slides, read them on your own. Supercondylars, not always occult. This one's pretty obvious. However, they can be either non or minimally displaced. So draw the anterior humeral line, look for your fat pads. Again, supercondylar, fat pad. Um, Again, when you see a fat pad, anytime you see posterior, it's abnormal. Worry about an occult fracture. So case four, four-year-old male, fall from the monkey bars. Always beware the monkey bars. <laughs> He's not ranging his uh, elbow at all. Swollen, no obvious deformity. Okay. Is there an intern in the room who can give me a diagnosis? No one blurred out. Interns? No. Okay. Is there a second year who can give me a diagnosis? <laughs> I like the way you're thinking, but no. Great idea. Is there a third year who can give me the diagnosis? Okay, is there a line we can draw? Nursemaids, I like the idea, but no. So if we draw the radial capitellar line, line down the middle of the radius should intersect the capitellum in the middle. Does this with our patient? No, what does this have? This is a radial head dislocation. Nursemaid is a subluxation, so if you have a nursemaid patient and you get an x-ray, this line will actually be uh, normal. So what do we worry about when we see a radial head dislocation? This is the rest of our patient's x-ray. What's that? See a little fracture? Ulnar fracture, radial head dislocation. What's the name? Mugger, yes, this is a Montasia fracture. This is actually a Cuya Delta patient that I didn't see, but someone showed me the x-ray. Not so subtle. This is, again, a Montasia fracture. Montasia versus Galeazzi, Montasia's ulnar fracture, dislocation of the radial head. Galeazzi, fracture of the radius, dislocation of the distal radial ulnar joint. Remember that with Mugger, Montasia, ulnar fracture, Galeazzi, radial fracture. Why do we care about these fractures? If there's a name, it's got to be important, right? Right, because all of these need orthopedic and usually open reduction internal fixation. So we need to get the orthopedist involved in these cases. Uh, this is a Galeazzi fracture that I found from Google Images. So 14-year-old male holding onto a bicycle or riding a skateboard, you know this isn't going to go well, right? <laughs> so left wrist pain, he's not moving his wrist, swollen and tender. So these actually are getting a little bit harder. Anyone want to venture a guess on this? I'll let you look at it, and I'll tell you what I saw the first time I saw this. Like, 
these radiology techs at Harbor suck. This is such a crappy film. Let's send this patient back so I actually position him right so I get an x-ray I can actually look at. Well, truth is, exactly. So I was not being fair to blame the radiologist for shooting a crappy film. That's actually his anatomy. He has a distal radial ulnar joint dislocation. You can see that there is short, uh, overlap of the space that's not supposed to be there, and you have uh, palmar displacement of the ulna. This is actually really unusual. These uh, are almost always associated with fractures, such as a Galeazzi ulnar styloid fracture. And uh, you can see abnormal widening or narrowing of the radial ulnar joint space. And the displacement is almost always volar. So our patient is really unusual in the fact that he was palmar uh, dislocated. And again, these almost all need open reduction. Okay. Uh, I think this is my last case. Uh, Five-year-old male fall off a skateboard again. What's the diagnosis? This is where Crytone might help you. Does this little piece right there belong? No. So what does he have? It is a lateral condyle fracture. Uh, these are not that uncommon. 20% of all pediatric elbow fractures, they can be difficult to see. Uh, these can displace even if they're unmobilized. These are inherently unstable fractures. You guys know why that is? What is stuck on to your lateral condyle? So your wrist extensor. So even if these patients are really well immobilized, any wrist movement at all is going to pull this piece off. So uh, even with non-displaced lateral condyle fractures, a lot of the orthopedic surgeons will just preemptively uh, pin these closed. So this is our patient's post-operative pinning. The orthopedic surgeons tell me that if this is displaced, this is an incredibly difficult reduction. I'll take their word for that. Uh, Crito, I'll let you guys look at this. This is good for looking at the elbow if you're trying to determine if a little piece is supposed to be there or not. Uh, you can either memorize this or you know what the great thing about elbows, we have two of them. You can always take an x-ray of the contralateral side and compare it. Okay, guys, so we reputed some important stuff, and uh, hopefully you guys will do better on the in-service for having seen some of these cases. The yes, so lateral condyle because these are usually fixed operatively. I would uh, make sure the orthopedic surgeon at least knows about them. If they, if you talk to them on the phone and they say, you know what, put him in a double sugar tongue, I'll see him tomorrow and decide whether or not to fix them, I think that'd be reasonable. But I wouldn't send someone out of the department without a note on my chart about when the orthopedic surgeon is going to see him. Okay. Okay. Thanks, guys.